I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction. This is the story of the milk carton. I personally love milk cartons because that's where I get chocolate milk out of. My favorite part is pushing the two side panels back and then pulling the little triangular spout out. That's really funny because I actually hate milk cartons. I love chocolate milk, so I'm willing to suffer through them. I can't believe that. I can't. What? I can't tell you the number of times I've splashed milk on myself when I'm trying to do this. And of course, I only drink chocolate milk. So if I only drink chocolate milk, I'm going to spill chocolate milk all over me and stain a shirt. Or I like pull too hard and I rip it and then it pours weird. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much a lifelong uh, affliction for me. Before milk cartons, dairy farms sold their milk in glass bottles. There were many problems with these glass bottles. So the manufacturers of the glass bottles have to deliver those bottles to the dairies, and then the dairies have to fill those bottles with milk and deliver them to the customers. Anywhere along there, a glass bottle can break and ruin profits and you lose product. So because glass bottles are bulky, heavy, and they break easily, there needed to be a better solution. So whether they were transporting it to the dairy or to the customers, both trips had multiple issues that could arise because of the bottles being bulky, heavy, and breaking so easily. Once customers had finished their milk, the bottles were also collected and reused. When the bottles were being washed by the customers to be collected again, they would also sometimes break or chip. And during that collection process where the bottles go back to the dairy farms, they'd also break or chip. And recycling also brought the problem of sanitation. Sometimes the milkman would run out of certain sized bottles that he had to deliver. So if he needed two smaller bottles, he would take a bigger bottle and split that into two smaller bottles. This was called splitting. If he needed a bigger bottle, he would take two smaller bottles and fill up a bigger bottle. This was called doubling. The bottles that he would pour the originals into were actually collected from the homes of the customers, so they would often not be properly washed. Eventually, laws were passed so you couldn't mess with sealed bottles. But bottles were even recycled from garbage dumps. According to DairyAntiques.com, quote, many bottles were reclaimed from city dumps and returned to milk bottle exchanges to be reused. One milk bottle exchange in Boston, Massachusetts, recovered 490,978 bottles from dump operators in 1912 alone, end quote. So it made a lot of sense to get rid of glass bottles and instead use disposable paper containers. But there were laws against this. They had uh, some local laws. So these were like state laws or even uh, municipal laws that were sort of couched as purity laws, product assurance laws. And they required that glass containers be used. And Now, how those laws were put in place, I don't know. I don't know if that was um, successful lobbying by the glass industry or not. 
That was Matt Buchanan. We'll hear more from him later. People interested in continuing to use glass bottles argued that you had to see the milk. Back then, it was a legitimate worry if you couldn't see the milk because A, the milk might not be clean, and B, the dairy farms might not fill the bottles up properly. And they would be basically cheating the customers out of a little bit of milk. Eventually, paper milk containers were slowly being adopted. You can see pictures of the many designs that have been used at dairyantique.com. We have the link in our show notes. It's really worth seeing if you have some time. One day, someone invented what is the equivalent of the modern day milk carton, and he eventually got his patent in 1915. The milk carton that we're talking about is what's called a single use gable top carton. The gable top milk carton. Is I'm sorry. It was invented by a gentleman named John Van Warmer. Be it known that I, John R. Van Warmer, a citizen of the United States residing at Toledo in the county of Lucas and state of Ohio, have invented new and useful improvements in folded blank boxes. John Van Warmer, the inventor of the milk carton, who was from Toledo, Ohio, he actually had several inventions that related to、uh, containers and packaging for fluids. In the early 1900s, and one of his patents became known as kind of the original single-use gable top milk carton. He had a company in Toledo at the time、uh, that was called the John Van Warmer and Company. His invention that we're we're talking about is called the folded blank box, and it's United States Patent Number One One Five Seven Four Six Two, which was granted by the Patent Office in 1915. My name is Matt Buchanan. I'm a patent attorney. Matt writes a blog about inventions from his hometown, and you can find it at blogs.bnip.com. Matt, what process would Mr. Van Warmer had to have gone through to get his patent approved? You want to be able to be to describe your invention in such technical detail that you can put it down in writing. So once the inventor knows they're at that stage, they'll come to a patent attorney. Typically, they might do patentability search, where the patent attorney will conduct a search of other patents and other references that are out there and that are known, to see if, in fact, the inventor's invention is different. And if it comes back that there's enough of a difference, then they'll consult with the inventor, and the inventor can then decide if if they think. Uh, patent application is justified, and if the patent or if the inventor thinks so,、uh, then they'll go ahead and they'll prepare that technical document where we go into great detail describing how to make the invention and how to use it.、Um, and then once that's completed, you file that at the Patent and Trademark Office,、um, and the Patent and Trademark Office then will assign an examiner to it, and the examiner. Reviews the application. Sometimes the attorney wins those, and sometimes the examiner wins those. And if the attorney prevails,、uh, the patent office will issue a patent. So this hasn't changed really since 1915. <laughs> it it、uh, it hasn't changed, and it has changed tremendously at the same time. 
What has changed over the years and really has changed tremendously is when differences are sufficient and when differences are not sufficient. Right now, it seems, right now I think we're in a phase where we're probably a little more nitpicky. There's been a movement lately to kind of um, keep patents in their proper place, make sure that they're not overly broad. One of the beautiful things about patent law is all patents are only valid for a limited period of time. So, for example, today, patent terms are measured as 20 years from the day on which you file your application. So, at most, you're going to get a 20-year patent term. It takes a little bit of time to get the patent to issue. So, usually, you're looking at a patent term of maybe 15 or 17 years. And you can't repatent it after that. So, Mr. Van Warmer's invention back in 1915 more than likely was a 17-year term from issuance. So in and around 1932, his patent expired, and his invention was then in the public domain. Today we call our milk cartons Tetra Packs. That's actually the name of a company that was founded in 1943. Rousing filed a patent for his own version of the milk carton, which was very similar to Van Wormer's, in 1944. And this would have been after Van Warmer's patents would likely have been released to the public. This is a warning. This next section might scare children. So if there are any concerns about nightmares for your little ones, maybe have them cover their ears for the next couple minutes. In talking about milk cartons, we also want to talk about the Missing Children on Milk Cartons campaigns. This is a little bit before my time, but pictures of missing children used to be printed on milk cartons. I've heard that it started about 1984. I don't think that anybody knows exactly when it started. That was Dr. Joel Best. All right. <laughs> I was about to go down and clean my barbecue grill. You're, you're in my calendar and everything, but I just wasn't looking at my calendar on Saturday. Are you ready for the interview now, or should I be calling? Sure. You? Okay, awesome. No, no, no. This is fine. All right. I'm Joel Best. I'm a professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware. We called Dr. Best because he is the author of the book, Threatened Children. Yeah, uh, I wrote a book uh, called Threatened Children uh, that uh, talked specifically about the Missing Children campaign in the 1980s. And what got you interested in this topic? Well, um, I am the world's leading expert on poison Halloween candy. I did this work in the 1980s, and somebody said to me, gee, that's just like missing children. And I thought, my God, it is. <laughs> and I, I started studying the missing children problem. So the world's leading expert on poisoned Halloween candy became an expert on missing children. Dr. Best tells us the story of how the milk carton campaigns began. The, the, the background of this is that in the 1970s, there was a movement to do something about what was called child snatching. So child snatching is when a child is taken by a parent that doesn't have custody of them. 
also known as a familial or non-stranger abduction. Mom and dad would get divorced and one of them would get custody and the other one would get angry and, and steal the children. Sometimes this was quite elaborate. They, they'd uh, move to another state, they'd take a false identity and so on and so forth. And this was illegal. Uh, and But the people that were losing their children and the people that had the custody and discovered that all of a sudden their children had been taken really couldn't get uh, anybody to be too worried about it. They take the cases to the police. The police would say, oh, you know, that's a marital case. That's not a crime. So, milk carton campaigns all began because non-custodial relatives were kidnapping the kids. Often it was one of the parents. Uh, mom or dad might have the kid for the weekend and just keeps them and moves to another state. Yeah, they just wouldn't return sometimes. Because the police did not care about these cases, the parents would go to great lengths to try to find their kids. So they started publishing directories with pictures of these children who had been taken by non-custodial relatives. And they would then send these to school principals and people like that in hopes that maybe a, a principal would look at the directory and recognize a child uh, who had been recently enrolled in their school. But nobody cared. But th this movement really didn't have very much traction. And in the early 1980s, some genius realized that what they needed to do was rebrand the problem. And they called it missing children. Missing children. They uh, used three kinds of children. One was the child snatching. And they, they already had a kind of organizational apparatus to, uh, uh, you know, they, they've been good at trying to mobilize people to uh, uh, look for these uh, uh, missing kids. But then they took stories from the news about children who had disappeared uh, from uh, criminal abductions of one sort or another. Uh, famous cases from that period where uh, Eton paid to as a little boy that was walking to school in New York and vanished. Uh, Adam Walsh is the most famous one, uh, kidnapped from a uh, uh, department store in the mall, and uh, later uh, uh, his body, part of his body, was, was recovered. Uh, there was a, a paper boy in Des Moines, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, these were terrifying stories. Uh, and so what, what you'd get would be a news report that would say, Adam, here's the story of Adam Walsh. He went to the mall with his mother, and he just, she, they never saw him alive again, you know, which is an awful story. And then they would say, Adam Walsh is a missing child. And there are an estimated 2 million missing children each year in the United States. Now, you know, you had these awful stories of kidnappings. You had the organization that was doing this that was really the child-snatching folks, the, uh, the uh, uh, family abduction people. And then they added in the third group, which was runaways. And runaways were what gave you the big number. So child-snatching was rebranded as missing children. And missing children includes three types of children. One, the ones that used to be called child-snatched which had been taken by relatives that did not have custody of them. Two, kids that were abducted by strangers and ultimately murdered. These stories were included to grab the public's attention. And three, kids that ran away from home. 
These stories were included for the big numbers. All three of those types of kids were rolled into the term missing children. Uh, how many runaways were there? Well, nobody really knew. Maybe it's, uh, you know, one, one I suppose, 1.8 million uh, kids a year. Uh, people later decided it was closer to a million, but it, it hardly matters. The point was that that gave you the big numbers so that the terrible stories of kidnappings and murders, uh, you know, gave you the grabber example. And then uh, the uh, family abductions gave you the organization, and then the runaways gave you uh, the big number. And so this was a this was a, a story that was 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 uh, being promoted by the media. You'd pick up a newspaper, a news magazine, or whatever, and there'd be a story. Here's here's what Adam happened to Adam Walsh. Uh, Adam Walsh is a missing child. There are two million missing children, and uh, people uh, got. Uh, very upset about this. So there was a big effort to circulate the pictures of these missing children. One of the places where they printed the pictures was on milk cartons. What, the one that really captured the public's imagination was that there were dairies that started uh, taking these pictures, which were supplied by the missing children organizations. You know, they they would have uh, lists of these things, and anybody that was willing to to uh, uh, reprint them. Uh, they were they were delighted, and uh, so there were milk cartons that were containing these pictures. So why did milk cartons capture the public's imagination? It became a kind of of uh, you know image that people use. Comedians would make jokes about having your face on a milk carton. You know. I think that if you're drinking from a milk carton, you bring the milk carton to your face over and over again. So you would see the pictures over and over again. Why do you think that the milk carton was such a prominent image for missing children? Uh, I agree that at some level it really is a familiarity thing. You look at it every day, so they have you captive. You're going to have your milk every single morning. So if they have you captive and you have your milk every morning, they're going to be able to show you images that will register a little bit more. They also kept milk cartons in refrigerators sometimes, so you would you would keep it in your home for a longer period of time, and again, you would see that milk carton more often than you would see, say, a newspaper that you read once and then threw away. So when and why did the milk carton campaign fizzle out on national attention? In 1986, the Denver Post won the Pulitzer Prize, quote, for its in-depth study of missing children, which revealed that most are involved in custody disputes or are runaways, and which helped mitigate national fears stirred by exaggerated statistics. And a lot of these kids were never in any danger. You know, the typical runaway is a 14-year-old girl uh, who gets mad because her parents won't let her pierce her ears, and she goes to live at her best friend's house for, uh, and doesn't tell them where she's going, and she I stays there. Uh, one or, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then they come back, you know, so the, the vast majority of runaways, they're not, they're, 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 they're not uh, you know, fleeing to Los Angeles where they get caught up in the sex trade. Most of them are home within a day or two, and they've never been in any real danger. And so people got bored. At some point, people got bored. All right, friends and food buffs, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We are so excited to be back after that two weeks away. Yes, we're very glad to be back, and we appreciated 
much of the constructive criticism we've received on iTunes. And we appreciate the feedback because for those of you that don't know, Lillian and I are both graduate students who are doing this as a fun side project. So we appreciate the feedback as well as your understanding that we're still working out the kinks. We've got some feedback about the podcast and we're really excited to implement some new strategies to make it a better podcast. Yeah. Have a great week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.